Fear of the Lord, which is our theme today, I'm going to give you a survey of a lot of stuff in Scripture rather than one or two main passages. So also just wanted the freedom to kind of jump around with you. So Proverbs chapter 1. If you were not here the last two weeks or either of the last two weeks, we've been on a kind of trajectory of talking about wisdom. The last two weeks we talked about wisdom. We are overall in a series, in our sermon series, called The Grammar of Faith, where we take a vocab word every week, like trinity, or gospel, or wisdom, or sin, or creation. And we talk about what does this word mean, and how do you use it in the Christian life. Um, Today, the fear of the Lord is our vocab word, fear. But just want to say right away, the fear of the Lord is a subset underneath wisdom. And I'm just going to say this in the bulletin, in the sermon title. The fear of the Lord in all wisdom literature in the Bible is the heart of wisdom. Those who are wise in scripture are above all else before anything else, after anything else, those who know how to fear God. Um, And this is, and I'll talk about in a minute, this is both a very ignored theme. Um, This might even be new for some of you. We're supposed to fear God. Isn't isn't there all these passages in the Bible that we're not supposed to fear? Or maybe you associate it with like BBC dramas from the 1800s where like really staid, narrow, old British women who just tell you all the things you're not supposed to do, that they fear the Lord, and you just have this very dour, narrow, negative take on it. Um, Here is, I think, in our cultural context, one of the great examples of we have lost our own culture as American Christians. We don't know how to use our own language, that we either don't even know that we're supposed to fear the Lord, or we have a sense of that's kind of repressive and archaic and negative and dour. And I would love for us to reclaim this language, but there are also real obstacles to reclaiming it. For now, I just want to show you some stuff. Um, In Proverbs chapter one, where we spent some time the last couple of weeks, Uh, the three main documents of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and we're going to very quickly look at each one. It's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then the book of Job. And in all three of these books, the fear of the Lord is the central concept. But the fear of the Lord also plays a slightly different role in each book. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, arguably the thesis statement of the entire book, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Jump ahead to chapter 9, which is the end. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about this. This is the end of the introduction to Proverbs. And in chapter 9, verse 10, there's an inclusio. It frames the beginning and the end of the introduction with this concept. Chapter 9, verse 10 of Proverbs. Here it is again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, I want you to notice that Proverbs actually limits the fear of the Lord there. The fear of the Lord is not all of our wisdom. It's only the beginning of it. Yep. You can be really, really godly and be terrible at math and just reading the Bible more, praying more, doesn't teach you anything about math, about science. The fear of the Lord is only the beginning of our wisdom. It's not all of our wisdom, but nonetheless, it is the starting point. It is the beginning of our wisdom. If you jump to the next book, right after Proverbs, this is Ecclesiastes. I am excited to one day preach to Ecclesiastes. Many of you will resonate with this book. I love this book. For now, I just want you to notice that at the end of the book in chapter 12, 
And, and here is, if you've never read Ecclesiastes before, or if you've read it but you're not quite sure what to do with it, here is how I would summarize the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is written by an old guy, whoever this person is, who is basically recounting all of the dead ends he has run into in life. When I was young, I thought if I got into an Ivy League school, that would open up every door. When I was looking at all these beautiful women, I thought if I got the right one or maybe just dated all of them, that would really make me happy. I thought if I got a lot of power, I thought that if people just saw me with high status and I had a good reputation, I thought all of these things and every single one of them is a dead end. Every single one of them. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. And the fear of the Lord here plays a very different role than it does in Proverbs. Where Proverbs, it postures you as a young son who's maybe 17 or 18 years old and going into the world as an adult for the first time. And everything's new. Everything is still to be discovered. Everything is still to be explored. And in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the starting point from which you should explore the still unknown world that you're going to encounter. In Ecclesiastes, you now know everything that's out there and you know that it all disappoints you. You know that every single road you can take is not what you thought it was when you were younger. And now you're cynical. And now you struggle to be motivated and get out of bed in the morning the way you did when you were young. Now you are disillusioned and the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes is to that context. A father says to his son, everything this guy in Ecclesiastes has said is true, it's wise, But my son, verse 13, actually, let's start with verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. I lost it, but years ago in campus ministry, somebody um, carved that verse and gave it to me to put in my library. Um, because I have way too many books. And it was just a reminder that you can always read more books. And, and, but here, it's not even so much books. It's a bit misleading. It's, yeah, maybe sex is a dead end. And maybe power is a dead end. And maybe money is a dead end. But this other one, maybe that's, it's like, son, you can just trust this guy. Every possible road you can go down is a dead end. You don't need to find that out for yourself. That's every generation learns that. You don't need to redo that in your own life as a lesson. I promise you ahead of time, you will be disappointed by every road you go down if you expect it to be what unlocks the key to the universe for you. So, verse 13, the end of the matter. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But notice here, it is also the end of the matter. The end of the matter, everything has been heard. My son, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is the whole duty of human beings. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every seeker thing, whether good or evil. Here in Ecclesiastes, the fear of the Lord is what you take refuge in at the end of every dead road. At the end of every dead end. It's somewhere you end up after you get lost and disoriented. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is also the end of wisdom. It's also the end of the road. Whatever the fear of the Lord is, it's not the ABCs that you um, graduate from. It's also all the way to Z. The fear of the Lord is the end of our wisdom as well. And finally, jump back a couple of books before Proverbs, before Psalms, to the book of Job. Job 28. Job is right before Psalms. It is also wisdom literature. Job 28 is arguably the middle key section of the book of Job. I don't think any of the characters are speaking here, Job or his three friends. I think it's an editorial interlude. I think the narrator is speaking here. But whatever is the case, it 
both evaluates the debate between Job and his three friends, and it basically just negatively confirms none of them have discovered wisdom. Job is not wise, and his three friends are not wise. They're all chasing dead ends. But it also sets you up for what will happen later in the book. And I'm not going to read much of chapter 28, but I want you to notice that there is a question that dominates chapter 28. It shows up for the first time in verse 12. Where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? And then in verse 20, again, from where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living. There is not a human being in history or an animal or any an angel that knows the place to wisdom. It is concealed from the birds of the air, even Abaddon, the graveyard, and death say. We've only heard a rumor of it with our ears, but we don't actually know where it is. But God understands the way to wisdom, and he knows its place. Because he looks to the ends of the earth, and God sees everything under the heavens. When God gave to the wind its weight and a portion to the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and he declared it and he established it and he searched it out. Often point out those four verbs are verbs that are characteristic of a sage, a wise person in the book of Proverbs. A wise person sees things, declares things, establishes things, searches things out. Here the idea is God is ultimately the only wise person in the world. No one else is. In the past, in the present, in the future. Why? Because only God made the world and understands everything about how the world works. Most of us, most of reality is a blind spot for us, whether we admit it or not. Most of us do not know most of what is going on in the universe. Therefore, where shall wisdom be found? We do not have access to it. Then here is the key verse, verse 28. But there's two very different ways you could understand it. And this God who is, as Paul says later in Romans, the only wise God, he said to human beings, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. There's an optimistic reading of that verse. And there's a pessimistic reading of that verse. I am convinced the pessimistic reading is the right one. The optimistic reading is, well, God alone has wisdom, but for those who belong to him, Christians, the people of God, God shares his wisdom with us. So we now actually can say on the back end, we are wise like God. But that's not actually what it says. What it says is the only one in the universe who is wise and who understands what is going on has told us one thing. Fear me and turn away from evil and that will be your wisdom. And so here is, if in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as you embark upon exploring creation and begin to discover it, it's not all of your wisdom. It's only the beginning of it. You need to learn a lot of things about the world that are not in the Bible and that tradition and experience can't tell you on day one. But you need to go into the world with the fear of the Lord is the starting point. If in Ecclesiastes, it's the end of wisdom. It's where you end up after you run into all these dead ends. In the book of Job, And and here's why it's not a contradiction. The book of Job is not about the world in general. The book of Job, as many of you know, is specifically about this. Why does, not just suffering, that's too generic. What do you make of senseless, unjust, ridiculous suffering? If you and your friends all graduate from college and you all go go get married and, and you raise your families and you all are Christians and you all attend church and you're devoted to God and his kingdom... 
and your kid gets in a car accident and their kids don't. Why? You get cancer at 34 and they all live to be to their 70s and 80s. Why? And in case you ever are wondering about this in the future for me as a pastor, Christians and human beings in general are so interested in trying to give lots of answers to those questions. So let me say very explicitly, I have no idea. I do not know why. I do not know why. And the whole point of the prologue in Job, where all this stuff is going on behind the scenes between God and Satan, the point is not, oh, there's the explanation. God and Satan made a bet, and that's why, Satan, why Job is suffering. The point is, there are things going on behind the scenes that you could not possibly imagine. And they have not been revealed to us. And when it comes to senseless suffering, when it comes to the real heartbreaks of life, the fear of the Lord just is the only wisdom you have access to. Trust and obey because there is no other way is all I can tell you. It will be worth it to still trust in God, but I have no other insight to tell you why he rules the world in such a way where cancer in this case, not here, car accident for a kid here, all your kids get into Ivy League schools and fulfill all your dreams. I have no idea why it works out that way. I do know that God rules the world. I know that he's wise and he's good, and I know it's worth trusting him. But in this particular area of the world, senseless suffering, the fear of the Lord is all the wisdom you have access to. And anybody else who offers you more wisdom is either selling you a story or selling themselves a story they do not actually know. If they say it's all random, there is no God, none of it means anything, they don't actually know that. If they say God did this and this and this, so that this and this and this, that's a nice story that makes them feel a little more in control, but they do not know that. All you have is the fear of the Lord in this circumstance. And so this is a way to set up that in Job, the fear of the Lord is all of the wisdom we have when it comes to suffering. In Proverbs, it is the beginning of wisdom as we embark upon our lives and the world. In Ecclesiastes, it is the end of our wisdom when we run into dead ends. It, I just want to raise the, the ante mantle. You want to understand what the fear of the Lord is, if this is true? Because this is the key thing in life, if this is true. Now, let me step back and say this. I am somebody, both as someone who did not grow up in the church, and as someone who, and, and I always, not, not that I go this route very often, but, but even in doing this, there's two things I'm going to do today that I feel uneasy and, and reluctant about. The first one is I'm going to talk about my dad a bit, who died a couple of years ago. And both because of my dad, and, and I want to honor him, but also because he's not here anymore to defend himself, I feel very uneasy about throwing him under the bus. But I, I will just say, my dad was a tyrant. My dad was a tyrant. The two main things I remember about my childhood is how terrified I was of him and how angry I became at him as I got older. The, a couple of years ago, I was in a small group at a church, and one of the icebreaker questions was, here are four primary emotions. Which one do you feel most often? And the first one was joy, and I was like, who answers joy? Is the main way you experience the world. I was like, what's wrong with these people? Who answers joy? And the other one was uh, sadness, anger, and fear. I knew right away, fear. Fear is the main emotion I have felt in my life. And so I, have a, I come into this not just as somebody for whom the fear of the Lord is not my native tongue to talk like that, but I have spent a lot of years. I've been a Christian for 25 years, and it is still the case that my gut instinct is that fear is inherently toxic, is that fear is just negative because it's been so toxic 
in my own life. And some of you know this in 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear. Like, doesn't it take us away from the fear of the Lord? 2 Timothy 1, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of self-control, power, and love. And fear is so often, I would say ultimately the same thing with anger. Anger is not intrinsically sinful, but it usually is in a fallen world. I remember years ago having a pastor, some of you have heard me say it in marital counseling or individual counseling, one-on-one stuff, that, that um, for Christians who maybe turn to Jesus turning tables over in the temple and getting angry at the Pharisees, that that's a minor note in Jesus's ministry, and it can become an excuse for anger in your own life that's not actually Jesus' anger. Remember an older pastor saying, Nick, most of our anger in a fallen world is not righteous anger. And I think that's a good litmus test. I would also say this, most of our fear is not godly fear. So I just want to say that as I try to, in the rest of our time, reclaim the fear of the Lord, I do want to acknowledge, if you come into this with some trepidation, because fear has been your experience in a negative way, or because it's just like, this is such an odd way to talk. Why are we even talking like this? I really do get that. Um, With that said, let's do a quick survey, and then I'm just going to say a couple of things about the fear of the Lord. If you want to dive into this more in the future, um, this more than most of the things we're talking about in this series, you can go to BibleGateway.com. It's a great website where you can search a lot of different English translations, and I would just encourage you, search the single word fear and look up all the occurrences, and it will be an education for you of how prominent this is in Scripture. First place I want us to look at is Leviticus. Might not be what you think that we're going to do, but right away I want you to see that this, uh, this category, the fear of the Lord, operates in a different way than you would expect it to. Leviticus 19 is the central ethical chapter in Leviticus. This is where you shall love your neighbor as yourself comes from in the Old Testament. And it is mostly focused, Leviticus 19, on making sure that you are not a person of injustice and oppression who treats those who are vulnerable and open um, to the power of other people in negative ways, that you don't do that. And so Leviticus 19, verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. The modern analogy of that would be I'm going to give you very little up front so that I can invest and make a little and I'll give it to you later on where the rich person gets richer and the poor person is even more vulnerable. That is a classic move of the rich to the poor in all ages and generations. Don't do that. And not just that, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind which is basically elementary school and middle school, like it's filled with bullies, like people who are stronger, messing with people who are weaker and thinking that it's funny. This is is basically middle school and elementary school, right? Don't do that. Instead, you shall fear the Lord your God. When you oppress the vulnerable, you are failing to fear God. When you do not respect those who have less resources than you do, you are not just failing to love them, you are failing to fear and respect their creator. So the fear of the God, uh, the fear of the Lord, you'll notice, often operates ethically in those moments that are too personal, too private, too am- ambiguous for legislation to legislate. 
You can come up with all the laws you want. There'll still be bullies in every community. You can come up with all the laws you want. There'll still be loopholes where the rich can do stuff to the poor. The fear of the Lord operates in those gaps to keep you from doing things that even the law can't get you for. If you fear the Lord, you will not do this to people who are vulnerable. Jump ahead a few verses to Leviticus 19, verse 32. Verse 32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When young people are disrespectful to old people, one of the ways to understand that is there is a lack of the fear of the Lord there. We are supposed to honor our fathers and mothers. We are supposed to respect those who are older than us. When a culture does not, it is a litmus test that the fear of the Lord has gone away. The fear of the Lord helps us to not fall into these patterns that happen in culture after culture. Jump ahead to Leviticus 25. This is the great Sabbath Jubilee one. If you were here three weeks ago when Damaris Taylor preached, Jesus is Jubilee. This is a chapter that we looked at, Leviticus 25. And I want you to notice that the fear of the Lord shows up here again. Leviticus 25, let's start with um, verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or you buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, every 50 years. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. But here's what you can do. You shall not wrong one another. Rather, you shall fear the Lord your God. Taking advantage of situations selfishly where the law can't cast a spotlight on you, which is most of life and most of our moments. How you operate in those shady spaces, the fear of the Lord is very, very significant. Fear of the Lord. Chapter 25, jump down to verse 36. Verse 36. Let's actually start in verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you or your sister, you shall support him or her as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he or she shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit. Rather, fear your God so that your brother may live beside you. Only being able to relate to other human beings in business mode is a lack of fear in God. Only having the logic of the market dominate and and determine your ethics is a lack of fear in God. Here, fearing God has a lot to do with how you respond to moments when nobody else is watching and where you are in the driver's seat and you could take advantage of other people. Here, the fear of the Lord becomes very, very significant. One last time in this chapter. Down to verse 43. Here, if you start in verse 39, which I won't read, here the context is disaster has happened to another person and they sell themselves into slavery or indentured servitude because they have no other options. And here, verse 41, then they shall go out from you. You will not take advantage of the situation by enslaving them, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan in return to the possession of his fathers, for they are my servants, not yours. They are my slaves, not your slaves, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly. Rather, you shall fear the Lord your God. 
American slavery was a profound demonstration of the lack of the fear of God. That was at the heart of this story in Western culture. As Western culture diminished in the fear of God, slavery rose up. Even among those who often identified as very, very religious, you cannot treat another human being like that if you actually fear the Lord. Jump ahead to the book of Psalms. And I'll maybe email some of these out because I'm only giving you a very small sampling, but I want you to get the sense that this is not a marginal theme in our faith. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says, verses 7 through 11 just celebrates God's authority in our lives. And in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And here's why I chose this one out, because I was just reminded, I'm going to do this for this summer on Wednesday nights. We're studying the minor prophets. We would love for you to join us this coming Wednesday night. And we're going to talk about slavery and Abraham Lincoln a bit as we talk about Amos this Wednesday. In the next line of Psalm 19, verse 9 The rules or usually the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Abraham Lincoln quotes at the end of the second inaugural address after he publicly proclaims that the Civil War is God's judgment on both the North and the South for the slave trade. And a demonstration that both the North and the South did not fear God and are now receiving their comeuppance. And I think he was right to interpret history that way. Psalm 31. Psalm 31, verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, O God, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. One of the things that almost certainly will jump out at you if you do a study of this theme in scripture is how many, not only that it's seen so positively rather than negatively, but how many unbelievable promises are attached to fearing God. If you fear God, God's eye is on you. His protection is over you. If you fear God, you can trust in him in the future. He is going to provide for you. It is amazing how many promises are connected to the fear of the Lord. Jump ahead to Psalm 103. I'm just going to do a couple more for the sake of time. I could honestly just do the whole sermon, just like making little comments and verses, and I think it would be enough. But I do want to give you some sense of what I think this actually is. By the way, um, maybe, maybe we'll use it later. Not going to have you turn there. There's a great prayer in Psalm 86, verse 11, where David says, Unite my heart to fear your name. And so fearing God is the opposite of having a divided heart. When we fear God, our heart is united towards God. Psalm 103, great psalm, but the fear of the Lord plays a very prominent role here. Start in verse 11. As high as... As the heavens are, actually, let's back up. Um, Let's back up to verse 9. God will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger towards us forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Why? Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Because he knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. Then if you just look a little farther down in verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear him. Trying to raise your motivation, I want to learn what it means to fear the Lord. I want to be someone who fears the Lord in my life. Then finally, Proverbs. Just jump back there. Proverbs is filled with allusions to the fear of the Lord. Not going to read you many, but I think in our cultural context in the American church today, this is maybe the most familiar line in Proverbs and the one that gets quoted the most, Proverbs chapter 3. And so I just want you to hear it in context. Chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge God, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh. It will be refreshment to your bones. Isn't this amazing how scripture talks about this theme? For the sake of time, I'm going to move on, but I'll mention a few more. In the book of Acts, God-fearers is actually a phrase for people who enter the people of God as Gentiles. In the book of Acts, the church is often said to fear God. And if you think, because one of the two or three ways we skate this, skirt this as Christians, is we think this is Old Testament stuff. Christians, like New Testament, love. Old Testament, fear. That's a profound misunderstanding. Love is all over the Old Testament, and fear is all over the New Testament. And I will just give you from the dominical source of our faith, our Lord Jesus himself, do not fear those who can hurt or kill your body, but after that they can't do anything to you. Instead, fear God, who after you have died, is able to send you to somewhere that's much worse than simply what human... Jesus explicitly says, don't fear people, fear God. And so this is a central theme. The New Testament writings are filled with admonitions to fear the Lord. And so it raises the question, what does this mean? Um, And so what I want to do for just a couple of minutes is give you a couple of very um, uh, ad hoc, my ways of putting it, um, rather than just restating what Scripture says. I want to give you a sense of what's there. If any of you were here, was it just last week that Jane Sang was here? Was that last Sunday? Two Sundays ago. Okay, two Sundays ago. Jane and Tim were here, and they led a mental health seminar after church, which is wonderful. And one of the many things Jane said that stood out to me, and Jane is always so insightful, is she said, I actually think stuff like fear and sadness and anxiety are not primary emotions, even though our culture often identifies them as primary emotions. She said, I actually think love is a primary emotion and the others are not. And I think she's right. And so I'll say this, here is a way to think about the fear of the Lord that I think will help you get away from some of the toxic, dour, negative takes on it. A couple of ways I could put it, but here's the first one I'll put it. Every single one of you experiences fear all the time. In fact, the one thing that is not available to you is a fearless existence. If you were fearless, either you would be a psychopath and therefore completely out of touch with your own reality, or you would be telling a story that's not true to yourself and others to shore things up. None of you is without fear. And in fact, I even want to say later, that's a good thing. We are, we are built for fear. But I would also say this, 
As soon as you become aware of something you're afraid of, something you're stressed over, something you're worried about, something that lands on you with some form of terror or worry or fear, you, you immediately know something, or at the very least I'll say this, I now immediately know something about you. I know something about what you care about. Fear is always connected derivatively as a reflex to what we care about. The reason I am not afraid of the Boston Red Sox not winning the World Series this year is I can't care less about the Boston Red Sox. Now, I do kind of get afraid that the Yankees will go another whole year without a World Series because it's been way too long, right? We should, we should be winning the World Series more than other teams because we're a better team than other cities. But the Red Sox, they don't lose. I could care less. And what you know is therefore I don't care. If you walk into a doctor's office and you are worried about a prognosis of cancer, I immediately know that you care about life, that you love being alive. If you are scared about something happening to your kids, I now know immediately you care about your kids. Fear is always connected derivatively, secondarily to what we primarily value. And so I want to suggest that to say that we fear the Lord is a way to say that we value him above all else. And therefore, our fears are connected to him above all else because our care, our value, our delight our desire is connected to him above all else. There was a a book by a, a Princeton philosopher years ago with a great title. The title was just The Importance of What We Care About. And I would say the fear of the Lord is a reminder that it is important that we care about the things of God above and beyond anything else. And if we do, then of course, doesn't it make sense that our fears would be more connected to that area than it is to other areas where we care less? Not that we don't care, but where we care less. If I know what you are stressed over, what you are afraid of, I immediately know something about your value system. I immediately know something about what you are hoping for, what you care about, and what is not as important to you. The reality is that if we value God above all else, his person, his purposes, his beauty, his glory, his desires, his will, then it will inevitably be the case that therefore we will see the moving away from that, the betrayal of that, the dishonoring of that, as the great potential catastrophe and crisis of the future. Paul says in Philippians 1, this great honor and shame statement that he turns upside down, he's in prison, he's nobody, he is shamed publicly in front of the Roman Empire, and he says, I am completely convinced that I will never be put to shame, but that from now on Christ will be honored in my body. The fear of the Lord is saying, here's a sociological way to say it, that our honor and shame system revolves around God rather than around ourselves, around our family, around our friends, around our bank account, that our honor-shame instincts primarily revolve around God. John Murray put it this way, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. The emphasis of Scripture in both the Old and New Testament requires no less significant a proposition. Wisdom takes its inception, its beginning, from the apprehension and emotion which the fear of God connotes, if we are thinking of the notes of biblical piety, none is more characteristic than the fear of the Lord. Then he gives us this challenge. The highest reaches of sanctification, of godliness, of becoming like Christ, are only realized in the fear of the Lord. 
There are certain places you can only get to in the Christian life if the fear of the Lord is operating there in our motives. Many, many interesting, powerful places in Scripture you see this. I'll mention one. Many of you will remember that the book of Exodus starts with the people of God, Israel, enslaved, and Moses is born, and Pharaoh has a decree to kill all the firstborn male children of Israel. And the midwives of Israel disobey the king, and they hide Moses because they feared God rather than the king. They feared God rather than the king. This is a positive thing. It is ultimately a valuable thing. Here's the second thing I want to say. The first thing is that it's a reflex. Don't try to go straight to fear. Notice that fear is already, whether on the human plane or the theological spiritual plane, fear is always a reflex negatively of your positive value system, which is why fearing God is not finally different from loving him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, trusting in him, hoping him. It's a different way of talking about the same thing. And it's pointing out that all of us live our lives regularly experiencing stress, worry, fear, anxiety. Those who know God, their fears will primarily revolve around this area, not primarily other areas. And so here's the second thing. And for me, this has been very helpful because I think for years I implicitly, intuitively understood it differently, that the fear of the Lord is not a result of you being a sinner before a holy God, but is rooted in you being a creature before a creator. That is, this is not something that first arises because you have sinned. And one of the things, and and you have to be super nuanced here, and in the future, I'd love to come back to this theme. The fear of the Lord absolutely does connect to fear of judgment, um, the sense that God's wrath and consequences for sin might be coming. But nonetheless, that's also not the heart of it. And one of the ways I would put it is that if we had never sinned and rebelled against God, we would have still feared the Lord. And long after sin is out of the story, we will fear the Lord forever. This is a creator-creature distinction, not a sinner-holy God distinction. And one of the things I want you to notice is that when a baby is born and throughout its childhood, kids experience all kinds of worries and fears. And if there's a healthy family, they look to mom and dad to allay their fears. You don't look at a child and be like, buck up, kid. What are you, what are you doing being a coward? Stop being afraid. A kid is supposed to be afraid of how big the world is. A patient is supposed to be afraid of being sick and look to a doctor for wisdom and health. A servant or a subject is supposed to be afraid of the police pulling you over if you're going 120 miles an hour, right? Like those are all normal things. And I said it earlier, if you don't think this is true or if this is a new idea for you, I would encourage you to think about it. But I would say your alternative to fearing God is not fearlessness. It is all other kinds of phobias instead. To be a creature is to be weak, is to be limited, is to be finite, is to be mortal, is to die one day, and therefore fear is part of our existence. Every time you walk into a new situation, if you're with us today at Neighborhood Church for the first or second time, you're probably more nervous walking in than somebody who's been here for two years. That is a normal reaction to new situations as limited creatures who can't see everything, can't be everything. We are supposed to, as creatures, feel fear But what's gone wrong is that we no longer feel fear towards our creator. We feel fear towards things connected to our own selfish desires instead. 
And so this is rooted in the creator-creature distinction, not the sinful. And so any sense of telling me to fear God is telling me to feel more guilty and ashamed than I currently feel, that's a category mistake. Fearing the Lord is not itself connected to guilt or shame. It's connected to weakness, creatureliness. To put it this way, I heard this expression recently, and I think it's a great one, that in, in a sinful world, we all do this, and every culture does this in its own way, but there is something I think distinctive about our culture that our culture in many ways encourages us to have. What I heard someone put it this way recently, main character syndrome. To relate to the reality as if you are the main character. And that's a good way to describe what the fear of God is not. The fear of God, you know that you are a creature and not the creator. You know you're on the margins, not on the throne. You know you're valuable. You know that you're loved, but you know you're a child and not the authority figure. That is to consciously occupy that place in our experience in the world. That it is regularly starting from and entering and walking through situations saying, what does God think about this? What is God's standard here? What are God's desires here? What does God aim to bring about here? And to let that be the litmus test, the criteria, the standard for judging and evaluating that we bring into each situation. So it's a creator-creature distinction. It's not, negative. it's not inherently negative. It is just saying, you're not God, therefore fear God, because you're a creature. Here's the third one, and, and here's where I come back to some of my worries because of the illustration I'm going to use, but, but bear with me for a moment. One of the worries, understandably so, of the fear of the Lord is that it's a way of um, describing like a fundamentalist ideology. That it's like saying, before you even look at the science, you've got to believe the earth is only 6,000 years old because Genesis says it is, if Genesis even says that. It's a way of saying that you're already committed to having your eyes closed as you walk through reality because you already have all your beliefs. I want to say the fear of the Lord is not an ideology. It is a sensibility. It is a vibe. It is a posture. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to give two examples, neither of which I like. Um, because of how caricatured they get and the way they get used in the culture war. But I think both of these are analogous in our culture to the fear of the Lord. When someone describes in our culture someone else is woke, there's all kinds of baggage connected to that. That's gone through a lot of things. Historically, that's actually rooted in the scriptures and in other religious traditions as well, that it's a metaphor. Lots of people seem to walk through the world kind of the way people are sleeping are, not really aware of stuff that's obvious and that's happening. And to be awoke is to be awakened. But specifically in the American context, it's rooted in the black church, woke language, it's rooted in the African-American church. And historically, woke language in our culture means someone who goes into every situation aware of black pain and black suffering. It doesn't mean that that gives you the answers ahead of time, but it means that you're walking into every situation saying this needs to be prioritized because it's not being. Now at this point in time, it basically just means that all of my instincts are Democrat rather than Republican. And so it's become worthless. But I want you to notice that woke language is not a way of saying that you believe this rather than that or that you show up with all your beliefs already determining the situation, but it means you show up with a certain sensibility. And specifically that those on the margins in general African-Americans in particular, that we need to pay attention to how unjust this has been. It's a sensibility that you bring into situations. I've noticed in the last year or two, maybe this will 
be unknown to some of you. I have no idea how well known this is. Um, I've noticed in the last year or two that there's a certain kind of guy, almost always a white male, who thinks Donald Trump is awesome and who is very conservative, who self-identifies with the adjective based. That this is so based. And it seems to mean, if I can get my head around it, that unlike all these other liberal snowflakes who CNN or the New York Times tells you to believe this or do this, I don't really care what the mainstream media says. I don't really care if this is unpopular. I'm going to have a backbone, and I'm even going to take some delight in offending the delicate sensibilities of all the liberals around me. And so it's guys who listen to the Joe Rogan podcast and read Jordan Peterson books, and they often describe themselves as base. And there, it's not an ideology. If anything, their ideology is constantly shifting from moment to moment, but it's a sensibility that if the New York Times says it, I should probably distrust it. If, if it's coming out of a survey from Harvard and Princeton, it's probably garbage. If, if it's popular, I should probably resist it. It's a sensibility. Now, I would care less, ultimately, if you use either of those words. I would, I would ultimately prefer that we not use those words because of the ways they get co-opted and stuff. But I would just say, insofar as those two words are descriptions, not for ideologies and ideological systems, but for sensibilities of what should be prioritized, ways of coming into a situation with a posture already there, I think that's what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord doesn't tell you a ahead of time. Should I do this or this or believe this or believe that? But it does mean you show up in situations not neutral, not autonomous, not as a blank slate. But here's my last illustration here. I am married to Helen. I am the father of Taekwon and Ernest. I am an American citizen. Those are three examples. Of I show up in every situation I show up in already spoken for in those areas. Do I like the Irish and the Russians and Nigerians, absolutely, but I'm, but I'm not going to betray state secrets. I'm not going to betray American sovereignty because I'm an American citizen. That means that I show up having to be devoted to my country on some level, but even more so, I show up in a situation not open as a blank slate being like, I wonder what this dynamic with this girl could turn into, or I wonder what this could turn into. I show up already in the posture and sensibility of I am a husband and I want to honor Helen, I am a dad, and I want to take care of Ernest and Taekwon, and everything I do is going to be filtered through that. I am not showing up as a free agent. I am showing up, fear of the Lord, saying what I care about the most is what God wants in this situation. What I care about most is God's will and not cultural polls of popularity. What I care about most is not whether you like me or you dislike me as your pastor, but whether, and this is why the final judgment is always connected to the fear of the Lord. On the last day, my creator will look at me and will look at each of you and ask you to give an account for what you've done. And what I am primarily keyed into is that whether I hear well done, good and faithful servant or depart from me, I never knew you is the great question of my life. And everything else takes place within that. All of the great catastrophes and crises of the future are connected to going astray on that. All of the great promises are connected to being faithful to that. Those who fear the Lord live as those who are already spoken for. The reason we did the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I belong not to myself, but to Jesus. I am spoken for. What he wants, 
is what I want. I don't know the answer to every question. I don't know the solution to every problem, but I encounter every question, every problem, every solution spoken for by Jesus already, and no matter what the consequences are on an earthly level. So it's not ideology, it's a sensibility, it's a pre-commitment. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but would encourage you to check out that Gerhard von Rad um, quote at the beginning of your bulletin. It really fleshes out the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, here's the last point I want to make. Actually, let me give you one more, one more illustration. And, and I say this every once in a while, although I don't know if I've said it here before. Um, I, I will certainly say it bef- uh, again in the future. For those of you who are 30 or younger, your generation has lots of language my generation didn't. Um, one of the words you guys use that your generation uses that I love, that was not on our radar at all, is gaslighting. Um, that this idea that other people speak powerfully into your life and they explain your experience to you, men mansplain to women, white people tell black people the meaning of their suffering, whatever it is that, that you're being gaslighted by other people, it's such a good expression, such a good paradigm. It is true that if you fear the Lord, that will actually take you in that direction, that, that the, the power of other people's perceptions will diminish in the force they have on you. I would just say this as well. The fear of the Lord is not just having some critical distance from the perspectives of others. And, and do another sermon on this some other time. Um, I would just say this. Those who fear the Lord, and I'm going to put it in this language, also know their own proclivity to gaslight themselves. They know that we are unreliable narrators of our own experience. And that the great interpretation of your experience not only will not come from someone else, but it will also not come from you. In 1 Corinthians 4, there is a remarkable moment where Paul and the church he planted are fighting with each other, and they can't agree. And Paul backs up, and he says in 1 Corinthians 4, I ultimately do not care about your judgment of me. But then he says, and I ultimately do not care about my judgment of myself. I care about the Lord's judgment on both of us. Paul knows other people can gaslight him. He also knows, and and I would just say this, if you do not know that you have been telling yourself stories about your own experience for your entire life, I would encourage you to take some time to consider that you are all doing that, including me. We all gaslight ourselves. If other people's perceptions are not the final criteria for our experience, our perception is also not the final. If you say, I'm a person of justice, that's not, the final, that's not the final verdict. If you say, I'm good, I'm this, I'm that, maybe, maybe not, but you believing that and seeing it that way is not at all infallible. Someone who fears the Lord says, I want God to be pleased with me. I want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to constantly post on social media what I want other people to see me as. Any more than I want other people's interpretations to determine. And so someone who fears the Lord takes their bearings from God's perspective on them, not other people's or their own perspective. And that is destabilizing in a lot of ways, but it is also stabilizing in a new way. Okay, last point, and I'm going to end with something really positive, because I know this is an intense subject. It really is, and I don't want to back down from that. Here is what I want to leave you with. The fear of the Lord is not only good, positive, comes with so many benefits and promises and, and, and rewards. And as I said earlier, the alternative to fearing God is not not fearing. It's having all other kinds of phobias and stresses 
and worries. We live in a culture that produces people who are filled with phobias, filled with worry, resentful all the time, worried and tense all the time, can't sleep because the future is so uncertain and looks so bad. And I would remind you not only, many of you know this, that the most frequently repeated command in the Bible without a close second is do not be afraid. Do not fear. I want to now link these and say, to the degree that you fear God, to that degree you will be fearless towards other things. To the degree that you do not fear God, to that degree you will be kept up at night by a bunch of stuff that is secondary, that is not there. There are so many passages. Exodus 20, I am teaching the Lord, I'm teaching the people God says to fear me so that they would know that they don't need to be afraid. Ultimately, the fear of God and the fear of everything else hang in the balance together. And as one rises, the other diminishes. As one diminishes, the other rises. This is not, do I also want to fear the Lord? Do I want to fear anything at all? It is, do I want to fear God or do I want to be afraid of creation? Do I want to be afraid of the future and of death and of other people and of how much money is in my bank account and whether I get this and whether that happens? Or do I want to fear God? And those two things rise and fall together. Ultimately, the fear of God is the great liberation from most of the other fears in life. The fear of the Lord is what turns down the intensity of so many other fears. Um, this is ultimately why in the Chronicles of Narnia, and you got to quote it in a sermon like this, you hear about Aslan and you're asking about Aslan and the kids say, oh, he's a lion. Is he safe? Is he safe? And do you remember the answer? Of course he's not safe. He's the king, but he's good. And so you can trust him. But trust doesn't mean you don't fear him. Trust doesn't mean that you don't ultimately see the great value the great desire, the great supremacy of God and his person as well, and the great catastrophes and crises in your future are connected to that. Not connected to death, not connected to money, not connected to whether America is as prosperous in the future as it is now or not. Those are not the great potential catastrophes in the future. And so let me encourage you to cultivate the fear of the Lord. And so hear this one more time. Um, as a bit of a benediction at the end of the sermon. Neighborhood church, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge God, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Be aware of your proclivity to gaslight yourself as much as other people gaslight you. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And this will be healing to your flesh, and it will be refreshment to your bones. Let's pray.